Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Donna George Story, and I live in Berkeley, California. My fiction and essays have been published in Fourth Genre, The Gettysburg Review, Prairie Schooner, and Best American Erotica. My first novel, Amorous Woman, about an American woman's love affair with Japan, was released in the U.S. in June 2008. I'll be reading 13 Views of Grief, an essay inspired by hoax-sized series of woodblock prints, 36 Views of Mount Fuji. The essay appeared in Tampa Review. 13 Views of Grief 1. Trapped How old are you? the doctor asks. My father pauses for a long time. 152. He is sitting right beside me on a hospital bed, but his voice sounds muted and hollow, as if floating up from a deep hole. The doctor arches an eyebrow. My, you do look well-preserved for your age. The expression on his face is not kind. You might even call it a sneer. And who is the President of the United States? Jimmy Carter, I shout to myself. Maybe everything will be okay if he gets this answer right. My father pauses again. He seems to know he's failing the test. George? George Washington? Yes, well, that's enough for now, the doctor sniffs and motions us to the door. I can't tell you anything definite. We'll have to do more tests tomorrow. Alone with us, his bedside manner improves. When he looks at my older sister, his eyes definitely soften. But that is true of most men. I stare down at the floor, at his brown shoes, his polyester slacks beneath the hem of his white doctor coat. I'm still shouting, inside my head, what kind of asshole gets his kicks out of making fun of a man with a brain tumor? What he's just done is wrong, and I know it. But I'm 17, and he's a doctor, and my mother, who was a nurse and might have embarrassed him into good behavior, is still downstairs filling out the admission papers. Before he got sick... My father had a way with words. But now, my mother explained, the growth in his brain is causing aphasia, which means his thoughts have become twisted on their way to speech. The words he wants to say are trapped inside his head. At that moment, I know exactly how he feels. 2. Wired There are no chairs in the rooms in intensive care, so I have to stand by the bed and look down at my father. The suture on his shaved skull looks like a zipper. His chest is dotted with round sensors attached to wires that run to the beeping machines beside his bed. Since the tumor was removed, he's had several heart attacks. He keeps clawing at his chest. Years later, when I read Lauren Bacall's account of Humphrey Bogart's last days, she'll describe him doing exactly the same thing the night before he died, grabbing at his chest as if trying to pull himself free of his own body. How did we get here? If I think back, I can piece it together. My father began acting strangely around Christmas, withdrawn, not himself. Then he decided to take a few weeks off of work for no real reason, just a break to do a few things around the house. Then he needed to go to the hospital for tests, but it might just be a virus or an abscess. Then they told me it was a tumor, but it could be benign. Then they admitted it was malignant, 
glioblastoma, the very worst kind. But he might live for a while, even a year after the surgery and radiation. Amazingly, I believed them at every step, because I wanted to. But the day after Valentine's Day, the phone call comes. He is dead. There's no way to put a spin on that one. That afternoon, after the crying, after my mother takes her sleeping pill, I'm sent to the grocery store to buy coffee and milk, boxes of cookies. We'll be having many visitors in the days to come. And how are you today? The cashier beams. I consider telling her my father just died this morning, but instead I smile. My lips move slowly like a stick through clay. Just fine, I say. Three, receiving line. I've seen a corpse laid out in a coffin once, my great-aunt Bertha, but she was 92 when she died. I was eight. I remember watching my aunts pat her blue-veined hands, a rosary woven through the waxen fingers. I wanted to try it, too, but was afraid. My father wears a suit, a strange thing to lie down in. His chest seems to rise and fall as if he were only sleeping. But if I blink, the motion stops. Before the viewing officially begins, when it is just the family, I lean over the coffin and touch my lips to his. They are cold and hard, like kissing a coffee table or the back of a chair. I'm not sure if I'm glad I've done this or not. Many people come to pay their respects. Most are men in suits, my father's colleagues, the men he carpooled with to the city. My mother, my two sisters, and I stand in a line in our black dresses and shake hands with everyone. They've been through this before. My mother's first husband died in a car accident when my sisters were toddlers. A man who looks like a younger Ted Kennedy introduces himself. I recognize the name from random stories about the carpool buddies. The man tells me he's heard a lot of wonderful things about me. My father was very proud. His voice is hushed and sorrowful, but I see something else in his eyes, that silvery flash of attraction followed by a flush of guilt, ink blackening water. This is the moment I remember best about that day. 4. Ketchup For a few months after the funeral, my father visits me in my dreams. He never speaks. He sits down at the dinner table, we're having fried cube steaks, peas, Pepperidge Farm rolls, and pours ketchup on his plate. We both like lots of ketchup with our cube steak. My head is bursting with questions. Ah, so you came back to life? What was it like to be dead? Or were they wrong about your dying? But even in the dream, I know that to say one word is to make him disappear. 5. Haunting I pretend I'm studying the display of mysteries at the end of the aisle, but really I'm watching them, a father and daughter, deciding whether to buy a book. The man is bald, like my father, graying at the temples, like my father, wears glasses, like my father, has a beard and a round belly, not like my father. But it isn't his looks that matter. It's the rhythm of his voice, the way he bends close to the girl. On Saturdays, my father and I used to drive to the university bookstore, an hour away, and browse for hours. We would wander down into the aisles devoted to course books and imagine we were taking classes in Russian history or beginning Japanese. And then, at the end, we would decide which books to buy. He would limit himself to one, 
but I always manage to talk him into two or three for myself. The girl is making her case now, why she needs this one and that one too. The man nods. Was there ever any doubt he would give in? And they head toward me, books in their arms. I pick up the closest paperback and leaf through it. I don't want them to catch me spying. Still, I take a deep breath as they pass, sucking in the wintry mineral spice of his trench coat, her Charlie perfume. They walk by me, smiling. I don't think they see me at all. 6. Psych 101 We're sitting in my freshman dorm room, draped over the battered living room chairs, when my friend informs me he knows why I'm promiscuous. I feel my upper lip contract as if I've eaten something spoiled. I don't bother to point out that I'm not really promiscuous. I haven't even cracked double digits yet. In high school, the boys spurn smart girls. I'm merely making up for lost time. And still, I can't resist a response. Oh, yeah, Mr. Psych Major, and why is that? Because your father died. I manage a hmm of dismissal. What would he know? He still has two parents and the luxury of being annoyed with them. Most of my friends have two parents, or even four. Later, when I'm alone, I let myself feel the sting of his words. My friend was wrong, wasn't he? I know well enough I'm not going to find any father replacements in the narrow semen and Clorox-scented bunk bed of a college boy. What bothers me is that he and they might see me differently because I don't have a father. Damaged, needy, rudderless. I thought I kept that part of me hidden from strangers. 7. Cat Spirit Abesan squirms in her chair. She clearly has something she wants to say. That's fine with me. I loathe the usual lessons, stumbling through a binder of true-life dialogues that my employer, Voice of Kyoto, forces on its English conversation clients. So, what's new? I say. She sighs. Ah, very terrible happening. Last week my very dear cat became ill at... How do you say it? Tozuzen nakunate shimatta? Suddenly died. Seeing her expression, I quickly amended to, uh, passed away, and add, I'm so sorry. I am very sad, very sad, but today, something very unusual happened. I put a dish of cat food, her favorite kind, at the family altar. Miss Abe leans forward, a strange light in her eyes. Later, some of it was missing, so maybe I think she has eaten it, her spirit. I know Abe's son is 29. Unmarried, still lives with her parents. Her greatest excitement in life might well be coming to these half-hour English conversation lessons. I am filled with envy. She gets to experience grief the easy way. First a cat, then a grandfather perhaps. Step by step, the way it's supposed to be. Not pushed into the deep end of the pool like I was. Five years later and sometimes I still feel that frigid water. But we have something in common, too. I know how she feels. Grief transcends cultures, creatures. Her spirit, I say? Yes, yes, it might have been. 8. Festival of the Dead Thanks to Dr. Uno, I can enjoy my first Daimonji Okuribi festival in grand style, from the roof of a hotel in the city center far above the crush of the crowded streets. Every August, huge bonfires in the shape of symbols for great, 
Supreme Buddhist Law, a boat, and a Tory gate are lit on the mountainsides around Kyoto to guide the dead back to the underworld after their annual summer visit to the land of the living. The Japanese seem closer to their dead. They wash their graves regularly, let them preside over the living from picture frames above the family altar, offer them sweets and fruit on holidays, or every day in traditional households. Sometimes, after a beer or two, Dr. Uno confesses I'm like a daughter to him. He has two sons and always hoped for a little girl to spoil. No doubt it helps I have an opening in the father department. Spoil me, he does, with boat luncheons on the Katsura River during cherry blossom time, and evenings in 300-year-old restaurants in Gion, the old pleasure quarters, where geishas still trip through the streets. My father, with his depression childhood of evictions and hunger, would never have dreamed of indulging in such luxuries. But of course, Dr. Uno is not my father. The night of the bonfires, after Dr. Uno sends me home through the black velvet summer night in a prepaid cab, I dream about my father again, for the first time in years. I am walking along a highway winding through a forest of tall Japanese cedars. A car stops. It's an American car driving on the right, or in Japan, wrong, side of the road. I climb into the passenger's side, then glance over and see a man's hand, the olive skin set off by the white cuff of a dress shirt, the crisp gray wool of a jacket sleeve. And I know, suddenly, it is my father. How strange it must be, I think, to sit up again, to grip a steering wheel. After lying still under the earth for so many years... His muscles must be so stiff and sore. I want to ask him if it hurts, but I know he can't speak. It was tiring enough for him to make his way here to this foreign land. Even in the dream, I know, he must still love me very much to come all this way to find me. 9. At the Sushi Bar Our shoulders are almost touching as we sit side by side on the low stools, watching the chef slice octopus and tuna, we both order in Japanese. After all, we met in Japanese class. All the hardcore delicacies, fried shrimp heads, salmon roe with quail egg, gelatinous orange sea urchin in seaweed cups. So, are both of your parents from Chicago, too? I asked brightly. My engineer date is shy, and even on our third date, I still carry the conversation. Ah, well, my father passed away when I was 14. Oh, really? Mine, too. I just turned 17. My voice is still oddly cheerful. How did he die? A heart attack. Brain tumor followed by a heart attack, I chirp, as if we're comparing undergraduate majors or SAT scores. My date nods. He is appropriately thoughtful and sad, not giddy and tactless like me, but I sense he won't hold it against me. After all, he belongs to the Dead Fathers Club, too. This is the moment I realize we have a future, my husband and I. 10. Oedipus Complex My husband is just like my father in many ways. He is smart and kind-hearted. He treats me like a princess. In public he is quiet. At home he has a dry, budding wit. Sometimes he jokes about death, and I double over with laughter. In some ways they are not the same. My husband doesn't suffer from depression. He doesn't smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. I thought I would never find a man who loved me as much as my father did. But I have. 
if I think about it too much, it terrifies me. 11. What my mother told me. Occasionally, when I'm cleaning out my file cabinet, I glance through the folders of his papers. The death certificate, army discharge, a letter from his mother, who also died in her early 50s of heart problems, promising him his favorite home in cream puffs when he came home on furlough in 1945. The real jewels I keep are from my mother, told over a glass of wine many years after his death. She told me how they cried together in bed when they learned of his diagnosis, although in front of me he was always calm and brave. She told me that my father was still a virgin at 30 when they married, a good Catholic boy to the core. You've never seen a man so happy, she said. She told me that when we went, they went to his 30th high school reunion and everyone stood up and listed all they'd done since graduation, the only thing he talked about as his life's accomplishment was me. 12. Grandpa The picture of my father I keep on my mantelpiece was taken ten years before I was born. He still has a lot of dark hair, a thin face, sensuous lips. He gazes thoughtfully off to the left at something I will never see. He looks a lot like Humphrey Bogart. I have two sons, eight and four. When they are concentrating on something, a Lego project, a puzzle, they both purse their lips in a moo they've inherited directly from my father, as if a part of him still lives. My four-year-old has been asking me about death recently. He wants to know how old he'll be when he dies. Very, very old, I hope. He wants to know when I'm going to die. Not for a long time, I hope. He wants to be reminded where my mommy and daddy are. Both dead now. They died before you were born. I show him a picture of his grandpa, the one who passed on his color blindness to him so the, that peanut butter looks green. My son gazes for a moment, politely, then turns away. I'm disappointed. I wanted him to gaze for a long time, like I do. Then I remember he's looking at a stranger, much as my great-grandparents in their 19th-century Sunday best are strangers to me. Someday, with the right stories, I hope I can bring my father back to life for him. But I'm afraid, too, that words might fail me again. I put the picture back in the corner with the other dead ancestors. I keep them separate from the latest portraits of the kids, as if death, like the flu, is catching. 13. Last words. When I think about it, I have nothing to regret. The last words I said to my father on the phone the night before his surgery were, I love you. We had a long talk that night, and oddly, he was perfectly lucid. Himself. He got the numbers right. There was no mention of George Washington. At the end, he said, Well, I'd better go now. I love you. I said it too. If I had the chance to do it over now, I'd say exactly the same thing. But it would be different. In the past 25 years, the meaning of each of those words has changed. I am now a wife, a mother, a Japan scholar, a published writer. Love is no longer something I take for granted as I did then. I know, too, what a parent's love feels like the heart-wrenching, life-twisting joy of it. You is more complex, too, for
for he is no longer just an adjunct to me, but a man with his own dreams and fears, some the same as mine, perhaps, a man who confronted his death bravely, because, of course, he knew that he was dying and that those were most likely the last words he would ever say to me. I still mourn my chance to say these words with the new, richer meanings, which I could do if he were still alive. Sometimes I say these words to him, to the air, anyway. Sometimes I believe he hears them. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs) 